0: Take your Bible and open to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to continue our uh, look at the book of Matthew, specifically at the temptation scene there in Matthew chapter 4. As you were coming in, in addition to that bulletin for the month of February, there were also some note sheets available, and hopefully you picked up one of these. On the back of that is a little chart to summarize the temptations that are presented in Matthew chapter 4, and one way to understand that, so all the chart lovers out there, there's a chart on the back of there that you can take advantage of, but also some, some notes you can look at as well, so we want to see that. Uh, I want you to know that that's available for you. If you ever need access to those notes or want access to those notes afterward, we try to put those things on our website at EmmausOKC.org. You can find sermon material, sermon notes, the monthly bulletin. So hear us this month, speaking out of both sides of our mouths. Hey, be really careful with technology, but please hurry and look at EmmausOKC.org. So uh, watch your social media, but hey, if you're at home, you can catch us on Facebook Live. So we want to say both at the same time. We've said already, we're not here to dunk on technology this month and to tell you all the things that are wrong. There are some real dangers. There are some things with social media we need to pay attention to, but many of you use social media in amazing ways for your ministry and for your work and for your friendships. And so we're saying both of those at, at the same time. Watch out for technology, but hurry to our website uh, as, as well. So we want you to do that. One other thing before we read Scripture together, just the gift of being able to sing together and pray together. It's so, so good. And we're going to talk at the end about how that in and of itself is one of the gifts we're given to deal with the temptations and struggles that we we face in life. And so if you're like me and your voice just sounds terrible when it comes out, but the gift of being able to sing with others and what that means to be part of a church, to sing together, to pray together. Some of the most important ministry you'll do on Sunday morning is from 1145 to noon after we dismiss and the conversations you have and the ministry you have. uh, We have a hard time turning off the lights and locking the doors in Emmaus because we can't give people to leave, but I love that. So that is a good, good gift, and and we want that to be a part of of what you do. So Matthew chapter 4, let's read this section together, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him in verse 7, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, verse 8, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. May us, let's take some time to pray together right now in our service. Maybe use these couple of minutes just to pray for people in your life who are going through difficult times. Pray that God would continue to work through through our church. Father, thank you again for what it means to gather together. We come in here with so many different backgrounds, so many different experiences this past week. God, frankly, so many things running through our hearts and our minds. But God, above all, We proclaim that Jesus is better than all of those. That our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is definitely not in the name of Emmaus. Our hope is in Jesus. And so God, I pray that that would be a source of peace and joy. God, if we're in here this morning and we feel unworthy, beaten down, not sure where to look, God, that we could look to the cross and find hope. God, as we've said many times, thank you for the gift of the local church and the way the local church is able to be a part of your kingdom. God, we pray for our friends at First Baptist. God, we pray for them as they begin the process looking for a pastor. God, thank you for Kevin and for Doug. God, we pray for that church. God, that the days ahead would be incredible kingdom ministry, God. Thank you for the partnerships and the gospel you give us. And so we gather right now, Father, before your word, asking you to speak to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 5. Here's what you get there. One through four, eating, bread, appetite. We looked at those the last couple of weeks. Verse 5. Then the devil... Took him, speaking of Jesus, to the holy city, Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. I don't know if you remember the show from the early 2000s, Fear Factor. Uh, So, Fear Factor, they would bring contestants on the show, and you would try to win money by facing your fears, whether it was spiders, or snakes, or height, or all kinds of crazy things. And then in a way that could only happen in America, that show has been picked up again on MTV and is hosted by Ludacris. And so, you know, you do what you do living in America. But uh, Fear Factor won't go away. Uh, Fear Factor here is pretty high for me because we're dealing with a character often portrayed as a snake and now we've gone to a very high place. And now it's not even funny because you've combined snakes and heights. And that doesn't work for Owen very well. Um, so you know my well-publicized fear of snakes. Um, I also have an accompanying fear of heights. Now we're not talking about like flying. You asked me what I'm not feared, afraid of, I'll tell you sometime, I don't know. Um, I'm not afraid of flight, like you know, being up in a plane, that type of height, or I'll ride a chairlift skiing. It's the idea of like on the edge looking over. So I think the Grand Canyon was beautiful when I was there. It looked great from like 30 feet away. I don't know what it looks like when you're right up against the edge. I'm sure it's beautiful there as well. But I I watched the bottom of the Grand Canyon from a distance that felt appropriate uh, at, at that moment. So here in this story, we've gone from a serpent, a snake, which is bad enough, because now we're dealing with height. It says here that the devil took him... That phrase, took him, has already been used in in Matthew in reference to Jesus, and say that again, to Joseph taking Jesus and Mary down to Egypt. The first four chapters of Matthew are going to feel like Jesus is not in control of where he goes. He's taken one place by Joseph, he's taken another place by the Spirit, then the, the devil takes them either through a vision or through actual going someplace, You get to the end of chapter four and we're gonna see a very strategic change where Jesus becomes in charge of where he's going. He's taking on that role. But at this point, he's taken to the holy city. Surprisingly, this is the first instance of Jesus being in Jerusalem. Most of what Jesus will do will be outside of Jerusalem. He's not going to operate in the center of religious power. The work that he's going to do is outside of Jerusalem, and that becomes very important later on as the the gospel progresses. So he goes to the holy city, and he's set on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, we don't know exactly what part of the temple he's set on, but most likely he goes up on the edge of this pinnacle portico or tower that looks over a part of Jerusalem that's called the Kidron Valley. So this valley runs alongside where the temple was. Let me read for you just for a second from this uh, historian named Josephus who writes from a little bit later in the first century, but he's writing about this situation. Um, Not this situation, he's writing about this location. He says, the ravine itself, speaking of this valley, was so deep That no one could bear to lean over and look down to the bottom from above. Amen to that. Josephus is my type of guy. Um, It stood so high that anyone who looked down from the top of its roofs would become dizzy as he looked into the depths. Now think about this for a second. What happens when you get hungry? Well, a lot of things. You get angry, and you know. (laughs) But one of the things that get happens when you get hungry and Jesus has fasted for 40 days, you get dizzy. You often feel disoriented. You feel your blood sugar working against you. You get dizzy and disoriented. What happens when you go up to a high place and you look over the edge? You get dizzy. You get disoriented. Part of what the enemy is trying to do here in a very real sense is disorient. Make him dizzy. Lose that focus. Everything becomes fuzzy. And when that happens, your decision making is often poor at that moment. Look what happens then in verse 6. He comes and says, if you are the Son of God, now we've heard this language already, this goes back to the end of chapter 3, where God says, this is my beloved Son, and then Satan comes right along and questions that. If you really were the Son of God, this wouldn't be happening to you. So he's testing that identity, just like Kennedy said earlier. He's testing whether or not our identity is in Christ. So, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Purposely, throw yourself off of the heights. So, dizzy, disoriented, just throw yourself off, for it is written. Now, the enemy is going to do his own sermon at this point. He's going to use scripture at this point. And he says... He will command his angels concerning you, the second half of verse 6. He will, cons- he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the enemy's saying, saying, if you're the son of God, like you claim to be, throw yourself off here because God's not going to let you hit. He's going to command his angels to come and protect you. Now, what we need to notice is how much of this is actually true. Because we know from later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, I can command angels to come. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus will say at the time of his arrest and at the time of of his betrayal, if you guys can bring up Matthew 26, there we go, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus says, if I'm really in trouble and I need that help, I can call for the angels and the angels will come. But here's the ironic thing. Not until he gets all the way through the temptations do the angels actually come and minister to him in verse 11 of this story. Jesus is saying, I need to go through these temptations before the angels come and do their work. Because if not, the scriptures won't be fulfilled which is so much of what Matthew is about. So you have this sermon, and it comes out of Psalm chapter 91. What's going on in Psalm chapter 91? Well, here's how it begins. Psalm 91 begins, "He who dwells in the shelter of the Most high will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust." Psalm 91 is a beautiful psalm to have marked because it speaks of God's protection. It speaks of God's security, the way that he will care for his people. And so Satan is saying, hey, if that's true, throw yourself off the temple and show that it's true. But watch how Jesus responds. Jesus says in verse 7, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. First thing to notice, Jesus teaches a very important skill here for the Christian life and for those who are Bible readers. You can call this different things, but the most common way to speak about this is Scripture interprets Scripture. Jesus is not discounting Psalm chapter 91. He absolutely holds to the promises of Psalm chapter 91. What he will not allow for is the misuse of psalm chapter 91 and so what he does by calling on this other scripture is he says if you want to understand fully how to live out what that part of the scripture says you need to see what other scriptures say and this is just a good lesson for all of us including the preacher who has to be careful on this regard because to understand scripture, so oftentimes other scriptures speak to that and especially other scriptures will help us from misusing certain verses that we would just pull out, which is exactly what had happened here. So Jesus says, again it is written, like, hey, that's not the only Bible verse in the Bible. I know more. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This verse comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 which in one of those fun providential moments was our Route 66 Bible reading for this week. If you're going through our Route 66 Bible reading plan, we were in Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy 6 was our chapter. He goes back and picks that up, and he says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, the word Massa, this place name, has the same Hebrew root word as the word for test. So there's something about the test that happened at this location. And the test is mentioned in Psalm 95, it's picked up in the New Testament, Hebrews three, but Exodus 17 is where you actually find out what happens there. Exodus 17, the people have come out of Egypt, God has brought them out through the Exodus, And they come into the promised land, and you think they would be overwhelmed with gratitude. Like, God has brought us out of Egypt. He's taking us to the promised land. This is going to be great. He's going to take care of whatever we run into. Except they don't. What do they do? They complain, and they quarrel, and they're angry because there's not water available. And so you get to Exodus chapter 17, it says, "...the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink." And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Then in verse seven, it says this. He called the name of that place Masa, which means test, and Meribah, which means quarrel, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And here's our answer to what's going on with the idea of testing God. You say God is true, You say God will protect his people, prove it. Is God really here? If God's really here, we wouldn't need water right now. If God's really here, we wouldn't be going through this situation that we're going through. But Jesus overcomes the temptation that Israel couldn't overcome. And he says, even though this is a hard situation, I'm going to trust God even though I don't know how it's going to end. I believe God is protecting. I believe God is in control even when I can't see it immediately with my eyes. So why would he be tempted to jump? Why would Satan take him to the top of the temple and say jump? It's because if he jumps, he will force God's hand. If he jumps, he plays the one in charge and he wants God to play the servant role. So God, if you are real, you'll come through here on my terms when I so say so in the way I say it's going to happen. The test is that we would force the Father's protection. What does the Father do? Provides for and protects the family. What's the first temptation about? Will God provide bread? What's the second temptation about? Will God protect his people? What does the Father do? Provides and protects. Jesus is being tested on both of those realities. If you are the Son of God, will your Father provide for you? Will he protect you? We want security based on our senses. Something we can experience. Something we can measure. Now, how do we make sense of this? Because it's a call to faith. And I don't want to open a huge can of worms when I can't put the worms back in the can, okay? So uh, hear, hear me out on this. What does it mean to have faith in God? Sometimes we'll talk about faith as if it's the most illogical thing. Like, well, logic doesn't work here, the facts aren't here, but just jump anyway. Biblical faith is not primarily a blind leap into the dark, Yes, it's acting on what is unseen, absolutely. Faith is being sure of what we have not seen, certain of what, or sure of what we do not know, certain of what we have not seen. That is faith, but it's not without its reasons. There is good foundational reasons. It's not that the people of Israel have no reason to trust God. They just want him to come through again on their terms at their time. It's not that we don't have reasons to trust God. We just want him to come through at our timing and on our terms. How does this play itself out? One phrase that is helpful is if we think about faith seeking understanding. Faith seeking understanding. God, I trust you, and I want to know more of what that looks like. Beware of the person who has perfect answers for everything. Um, there's, There's a certain danger in that, Uh, So I pursued a PhD in biblical studies so that I would have all the answers and I came away with more questions than than when I started. Um, There's a certain degree of which we say, God, if I could see this, experience this, then I would believe in you. And God says, I've been so gracious to you Believe in me and I will lead you into more understanding of what that looks like. That there is a foundation to our faith that leads toward understanding. Now, what does this test look like? What, how, how could you in your life run into the second temptation? Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Probably the most prevalent for this room, because of where we live and many of our backgrounds, has to do with the assurance of our salvation. So so do I trust God? Do I trust his protection? Do I trust the security I have in him? Yeah, I do if I can measure it or feel it or experience it, which says that am I really saved? Well, I prayed a prayer one time and I had these feelings and they gave me this card and so I'm always looking back to that experience that I could touch or feel as the hope of my salvation. Am I really a Christian? When in reality, the assurance of our salvation is are we looking to Christ? So we say, God, I'm really saved, I'm really protected, I'm really secure in you, I really need to feel that. I I, I really need an experience, or maybe I said the wrong words last time. If I could say the right words this time, everything would be okay. No, no, the assurance, the protection we have is because we're looking to Jesus that he is our security, he is our protection, he is our righteousness. Think about our spiritual growth. As we're growing spiritually, we want to see visible signs that that's happening. And the danger is we start to equate health and wealth and easy circumstances with I'm growing in my faith, when in reality, it might actually be the opposite of that. But the second temptation, Satan says, if you're really growing spiritually, God should be giving you these other things. You should be able to see it. You should be able to feel it. You should be able to experience it. When in reality, you're probably growing spiritually from the inside out in a way that's not immediately obvious. But that doesn't mean that God's not work at work in your life. When we share the gospel with someone, we think, if I could just find one more piece of historical evidence, then that person would believe in Jesus or if my explanation just sounded better, if it was more persuasive, like that other person over there, then my friend would believe in Jesus. Now, I'm all in favor of archeology, span and I love the work that Christian philosophers do, but those don't bring salvation. Salvation comes through the good news of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians one, Jews demand signs Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Can you give your friend or your family member reasons to trust in Jesus? Absolutely, and we want to do that. Will those reasons make them lay down their lives at the feet of Jesus? No. That is the powerful, gracious work of God that does that. So what do you do? You continue to proclaim and display Jesus, like we say over and over again. Here's the hope of the gospel. It's not in what you do, but in what Jesus has done. Here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Not that I have all the answers, but that he is changing my life from the inside out. That's where our security comes. Satan tells you to jump and prove that God is there. You say, I know who I have believed in. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep me and hold me and lead me exactly where I need to go. That's temptation number two, actually. (laughs) One for today, two overall. All right, let's look at the third temptation. Verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So again, Jesus is transported, either through a vision or through actually going to another place, transported to a very high mountain. Now, there are a couple of places in the Bible, like with Abraham in Genesis 13, or with Moses, uh, the end of Deuteronomy, beginning of Joshua, where they're put on a high mountain and able to see a promised land. So this is not unheard of in the Bible. But Jesus is taken up to a mountain where he's able to see out, and he is shown. Excuse me. The word show is a key idea here. He's able to visibly see something. He showed him all the kingdoms, plural, which matters here, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Why does it matter that he's shown multiple kingdoms of the world? Because this contrasts with the kingdom of heaven that Jesus said he's come to proclaim. He's not come to try to gain all the small kingdoms of the world. He has come with one great kingdom. And that's the kingdom of God in heaven. And so there's going to be a battle between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. But he's taken to a place and he's shown all these. What happens in verse nine? In verse nine it says, all these, Satan says to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. First of all, This is rich irony, because in Matthew chapter 2, what already happened to Jesus? The wise men fell down and worshiped him. Jesus has already been worshiped. We've seen this in the book of Matthew, and now it's being turned around, and Satan says, Well, no, if you will fall down and worship me then this will happen. In fact, the whole book of Matthew is pointing to the end of Matthew chapter 28 where there's going to be a scene of worship before Jesus as he prepares to send out his disciples into the world. So this idea of worship is already wrapped up in the book of Matthew before this temptation comes. But if you will fall down and worship me, all these I will give you. That language, I will give you, what kind of language is that? It's father language again. It's I will give you your inheritance if you will worship me now. Now Emmaus, this is where one of those really cool moments in, in the word of God. Can you think, And I, okay, that was about to come out with the wrong tone. I was about to say that sarcastically, but you never, ever, ever have to know the stories of the Bible to come in here, okay? So you may not know this story, but it's a story many people know. There's a story in the Bible about a young man who comes up to his father and asks for his inheritance early, before the right time. As if his father has already died and isn't part of the picture and says, give me this inheritance because I'm going to run off with it and take the kingdoms of this world. Luke chapter 15 gives you the story. Jesus is being put in a temptation that parallels that story of the prodigal son who wants his inheritance. And Satan is saying, you can have this now. You can have your inheritance early, just take it from me. And what the prodigal son doesn't get right, Jesus overcomes. And he says, no, no, no. My father will give me the inheritance at the right time, but now is not that time. Why did Jesus know this? Because he knew Psalm chapter two. And Psalm chapter 2 is this powerful messianic psalm that carries this message that begins like this. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, if you guys could bring that up. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Now, if that doesn't have Matthew 3 and 4 language written over it. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth. Your possession. Jesus has already been promised the inheritance, the future blessing, but it's not going to come right now. So find out what happens in verse 10. In verse 10, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So again, he goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 again to, to draw this verse, but notice the phrase there, be gone Satan. You find that wording again in Matthew in chapter 16. In chapter 16 of Matthew, the disciple Peter comes before Jesus and confesses That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is a turning point in the entire book of Matthew. He makes this confession. Jesus celebrates, hey, that could only have come through the power of God. And then immediately, Jesus starts to teach them that the Messiah is going to have to suffer and die. And then after that, he'll be resurrected. And Peter, what does he do? He says, oh, no, no, Lord, that's not how this is going to work. And you know what Jesus says? That's okay, Peter. No, he doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, Be gone, Satan. Get away from me. Get behind me. What is similar between the temptation in Matthew 4 and Peter's situation in Matthew 16? In both situations, it's kingdom without cross. I want the kingdom, I want the blessing. I want the inheritance, but I don't want to have to go through the cross. The temptation in Matthew chapter 4 is if right now you will worship me, you can have the kingdoms, and you don't have to have the cross. You don't have to go through that. Peter is struggling with the fact, Jesus, we look like we could take the Romans right now. Like, we, we've got this. With you leading us, we can have all the kingdom, and we can skip that whole dying business that you keep talking about. There's another way to go about this. Kingdom without cross is status and power without sacrifice and patience. What does that look like in our lives? God, I want everything that you've planned for me and I would like it yesterday with no difficulty, please. Um, But it feels so real to us, doesn't it? God, if you would just show me what's coming in life, then I would trust you. As opposed to, you're gonna provide everything at just the right time. My call is to be faithful right now. Can I make just a quick, quick, can I make? It? You're not telling me what to do. I think I'll go ahead and make it, because I'm going to, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna make it. I, I wanna open another can of worms, close it, and we'll pick it up at another time. In this whole discussion, there's a question of what does it mean to worship the devil? What, that, that's language that even strikes us a little bit eerie. What do, what do we do with this? In the last maybe six months or so, and this just may be one of those cycles that comes through a church or through a pastoring, but I've been shocked how much I've heard about people struggling with interactions with a cult, uh, with dark evil, dark magic, down to pretty young ages, of people struggling with this. What does this look like to to have these discussions? And I I think that this is something we really need to pay attention to, to the point that I'd like to develop something more comprehensive than what I could do in, in three minutes, because I know this is hard for parents, it's hard for teachers, it's hard for kids, you know, just kind of walking through these things. The thing I would point out is when you're talking about this idea of fall down and worship the enemy, fall down and worship the devil, Remember, 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 that's falling down before a created being. So dark magic, occult, this worship of the devil idea, it's really pride repackaged, individualism repackaged. It's the idea I want to take a created force and manipulate it so I have control of it and I can get the ends I want right now. What's magic other than trying to get right now what would take longer to get? So much of dark magic, so much of the occult lives in this world of, hey, I'll unveil this mystery to you if you'll only go down this path. The reality is that much of life is a mystery. Much of even what we would know about God is a mystery, but He is in control, and He is good, and He is loving. And so the question is, is will we trust Him even when we can't see everything, Or will we try to manipulate forces so that we're going to know what's going to happen tomorrow? You know, why do people read to find out, based on the month of their birth, what's going to happen? It's a way of getting rid of mystery. We struggle with that tension, and God is saying, trust me, trust me. How do we handle that? What What do we do with that? Final slide here. Fighting temptation with faith. You say, okay, Owen, I I get it. The second temptation is don't put the Lord to the test. He's in control. He will protect. We don't test him. Equally, he will provide exactly what we want, not what we want, exactly what we need at the right time, even when I don't know what's going to happen with my job, even when I don't know what's going to happen with my family, even if I don't know what's going to come. He's going to take care of that. What do I do right now? When you read Matthew chapter four, and you see these temptations, it's so tempting to want a quick fix. Like, God, I'm dealing with some dark temptation in my life, some passions, some need for protection, some worries about the future that are eating me up, that are hurting my family, that are hurting my life. I need a quick fix. What do I do, how do I fight this temptation? Show up and sing with all your heart. Turn off your phone and pray to the God of the universe. God, I'm really struggling at work and in my relationships. Join a small group because you're not alone. Have people around you who are willing to talk about what's going on in their life. You know, no, no, no. that doesn't fix my problem. I have a real problem in front of me. Yes, and there are people who love you and care about you and they will walk with you through that because it's probably not going to be a quick fix. How do I fight these temptations? Invite your neighbors over to your house and share a meal and the love of Jesus with them. How do I deal with this temptation? Email jim at emmausokc.org, and he will find you something to go do, to do ministry and missions and love people around you. How do we deal with temptation when it comes? We worship God. The God we cannot see, but we worship him with all our heart. We daily, weekly seek to follow the way of Jesus, and we say, God, however you would use me, I'll trust you, and I want you to work through my life. We do not have the kingdom without the cross. And the way to the kingdom is often, often difficult. It often includes suffering, but we don't go the way alone. We go following after the one who has already gone in front of us. We look to Jesus. If you're here this morning, I call on you to look to Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus, this morning is an opportunity to trust him, to say, you know what? I've looked for reasons. I've needed more evidence. But really the problem is in my heart. I need to trust in him for salvation. We're gonna give you a chance to respond and do that. We're going to worship If you're dealing with temptation, sing this last psalm with all your heart. Trusting the God who loves you is at work in your life. Let's pray together, and we're going to do that. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of being able to study your word. Every week, I'm amazed, God, at how the pieces of scripture fit together. How when we look at Jesus what happens in the gospels how closely that's tied with the old testament and how much that impacts our lives god i pray that if there are people here this morning who are really struggling with the assurance of their salvation maybe they laid it awake at night last night unsure if they were really a christian unsure if they had prayed the right things or done the right things god let them look to jesus God, if there's somebody here this morning who keeps saying, I need one more argument or one more piece of evidence or one, God, that they would know what it is to lay down their life before you and trust you. God, thank you for your kindness to us. May we respond to that in worship. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.